we are right now in the middle of the our study through the book of revelation and if you're new with us haven't been with us uh sorry we're going to dive deep into revelation here um if you don't understand the context of everything that's okay we will try our best i will try my best to explain this difficult passage that we're going to get into a passage that many scholars say is one of the toughest um, passage to interpret in scripture revelation chapter 11. but before we get into this passage i want us to consider the reality of the church today in a sense of who we are as christians why we're here what are we doing and the reality is that the church today is engaged in a spiritual battle. We are at war. We are at war against spiritual powers, Satan. Satan, the king of this world, continues to wage war against God and his church. And that's a reality that we all have to, we all have to face. Let me just go through some real quick verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Paul writes, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Paul is saying that we are indeed waging war, but not a physical one. We're not, you know, carrying AK-47s around and wearing body armor, walking around in that sense. We're, it's not a war in the flesh, but it's a spiritual battle that we're currently in. Ephesians chapter 6, the passage about putting on the armor of God, Paul writes this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Jesus himself says this in John chapter 8. Turn there, it's not my manuscript. John chapter 8, Jesus himself talks about how, and he's speaking here to Jews, to people who are religious, people who should know who God is, who should be on God's side. But here's what Jesus says about them, these unbelieving Jews. John chapter 8, starting 42, says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And really the battle we're talking about here, it's a battle for truth about who Christ is. That is the spiritual battle. That is where the battleground lies. And that's how we know whose side you are on. Do you believe that Jesus indeed is the Son of God who came, died on the cross, and rose again on the third day for your sins? The church 
is called to bear this truth to the world. And so as doing so, we bear the same reproach, the same shameful mockery that Christ did. Like a mirror that reflects the every move of our Savior, we too will proclaim this same truth to the world, and we will also face opposition for that truth. And this has been played out over and over again throughout church history. It's like a broken record stuck on repeat. And so we think about this, and we think about our call here, we think about evangelism, and we have a gospel, quote unquote, night coming up. And we're, we're talking about how do we share this gospel with people? How do we evangelize? How do we reach out to our unbelieving friends and family? We find it to be difficult, right? To share about this, to share about your faith, share about Jesus with your friends and family, with people who are unbelievers around you. I, we find this difficult because, because there's a fear. I, I feel it too. I, I'm not comfortable sometimes to, to share about the gospel. I, I understand it's also necessary. It's difficult for us to speak and talk about the gospel because Every open proclamation about Christ leaves you vulnerable, right? It's like, it's like attacking without self-defense. It's like taking that jab, but when you do, you leave yourself open to a counterattack. And this, this truth of the, the fact that the church is in the spiritual battle, that we are all in the spiritual battle, continues on throughout the church. It will continue on in our lives. It will carry on through the future. And it will continue to what we will see here in Revelation chapter 11. And so take your Bibles, turn me to Revelation chapter 11, where we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. And here in Revelation chapter 11, we will see here the same kind of battle, the same future that is, that's held before us, that this is where we're going to. And here, the same battle ensues. It's a church against the world. But in this passage, in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, we will find three reasons why we can have confidence in God when we proclaim truth in the face of evil. Three reasons. Three reasons why we can draw confidence from God. Here is the first reason we'll first see that we have a sovereign protection over us. Read, let's read verses one and two. Here it says, then I, this is John, the apostle speaking, then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Stop there. Now, we know this passage is difficult because here we are given this scene of, of John before this temple. He's, again, having these visions, right? He's, we read earlier in Revelation that he was taken up to heaven, taken up in the spirit to have these visions, these prophetic visions of the future. And here he's given a measuring rod, like a staff. So he's like given like a meter stick, you know, and, and he's saying measure the temple. And we're, you were reading this, we're just wondering what's going on here? Why, why are you measuring a temple, right? And, it's, and we have to remember that when we read through Revelation, we're talking about an, 
we're talking about a book that's full of symbols. And there are several symbols here in these first two verses that we have to interpret. And I, I can't go through the different kinds of interpretation because that will take again too long. But just in summary, there's two ways to read Revelation. One, you read it literally, meaning this here is indeed future events that's going to happen. What you see here is what's going to happen. Of course, there's still symbolic interpretation here. Or you read these as purely metaphors for the present age, meaning what you read in Revelation is what's happening now, metaphorically. So there's two, those are two general descriptions of how you read Revelation. As you know, I hold to the future reading. I believe that these are future events. And so given that, this is how I will interpret this passage. Now, John here is giving me a measuring rod. It's weird. He said here to, to measure the temple God, the altar, and it says here to measure those who worship there. Right, so so we, we, we get this. We get measuring temple. Okay, so you know we, we measure rooms. We should know the area of a room. I'm, my, I'm currently renovating my house, and you know, I have to give measurements to the engineer and architect who's doing all the plans and layouts for my house. So you know, we, we understand that kind of measurement. So measuring the temple, we understand that. Measuring the altar, so we have this table before us measuring that. We see this that many feet and so on. That's Okay, we understand that. Then it says here, measure those who worship there. And we're like, what the heck is, what's going on here? They're measuring heights, waist size. What, what, what are we measuring here? Because um, if we're, we're going by high, I mean, we're, I, I think we're, we're at disadvantage here. Uh, we're, we're taught, so we see here, we see that John's told to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. And because that says that, John is told to measure people. We can start getting sense that this is probably not like a literal type of interpretation. There's, yes, John does what he's seen, this is what he's told, but all of this is a figure of speech to stand for something more. As I mentioned before in previous sermons, Revelation draws a lot from the Old Testament. Here, the measuring rod is an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, the last second section of the book of Ezekiel. And everyone agrees with that. And, the, and everyone will agree that the measuring rod here is speaking more than just simply measuring how the distance and the width and the height of things. The measuring rod used throughout scripture is typically used as a metaphor, a symbol for God laying out his divine plan to protect his people and to judge his enemies. That's what a measuring rod is usually talking about here. And so a measuring rod, when he's talk, talking about measuring these things, is God here is talking about the details of his plan. God knows every inch of his temple, of his people, of his altars. Talk about the purpose of his plan. God will divide those who belonged in the inner sanctuary here, those who are in the temple, and those who are outsiders. So he, that's why he says, do not measure the court outside the temple. So he knows who's in, who's, who's out, the purpose of his plans. God knows the structure of his plan. He, he provides here a blueprint for us, a blueprint of orderly worship for his people. So we're called here, we see here that this is talking about God's Sovereign protection. 
of its people. A few more things that we should that we need to interpret. First, you see here. All right, I don't know what happened. <laughs> but let's talk here about the temple of God you can see on this screen. All right. Someone, someone, someone trying to hack into our, our monitor. <laughs> Any case, we guys can't read it. We're first going to look at the temple of God. So it says here, rise and measure temple of God. So what does the temple of God do? The temple of God here, there's two views to this. I listed both views there. One view is that this is a literal Jewish temple that's built in Jerusalem. Right now, presently Jerusalem, this temple is gone. It's just a cement slab there, I believe, or rock or rubble. There's, there's nothing there. But if you say that this is, if we think that this is a literal temple that's going on here, then that means this temple most likely will be rebuilt sometime in the future, set up by the Jews, and the sacrifices, because there's an altar there, will be reinstated. So that's one view. The second view of this is that the temple here is symbolic representing the church as a whole. So this is talking about the bodily temple of Christ. And that is, again, based off scripture. We are the temple of Christ. Two views here. I, I will take, I, will, I kind of stand a little bit of defense on both sides of this. Not exactly the best place to stand when you talk about different views, you should have a conviction. Um, but I believe John literally sees a temple. I believe there's a natural temple in Jerusalem that he sees that this will be set up. So I believe there will be a literal temple erected in the future in Jerusalem, set up by the Jews. But that temple in Jerusalem, as real as it is, also represents the church. It represents all of God's people. So in a sense, it's both for me. I won't, I won't do this for all of them. Let's talk about the outer courts. So in verse 2, we see here, God, God tells John, not to measure the outer courts. And there's three different views to this. One is that the outer court here is talking about the unbelieving Jews. So if you're thinking this is a Jewish temple in Jerusalem, the unbelieving Jews who are, who are in Jerusalem are out there. They're trampling the holy city for 42 months. They're persecuting these believing Jews. Or if you take that this temple is completely spiritual, it represents the church and the nations that are trampling the holy city are the Gentiles, are the unbelievers. And then I read one commentary that said, I don't know how many people voted this, but they say that the outer court is not necessarily talking about unbelievers, it's actually talking about the church still, still talking about believers. But what he's saying that is the inner temple, the, the, the temple of God that's being protected, it's a spiritual protection, but physically outside an outer gate, an outer courts, we're still physically vulnerable to attack. So this is talking about the church as a whole, spiritually protected, but still physically attacked. Now, because I believe this is a literal temple, I think this is most likely talking about unbelieving Jews, persecuting believing Jews. Again, it's okay we think they're Gentiles, but this is where I hope that I hold up, I tend towards more of a literal understanding of this. And then the 42 months. We see here that they are trampled to stay for 42 months. What is that? Well, 42 months come out to three and a half years. Comes out to three and a half years. If you think about three and a half years, and I've talked about a sermon months ago about Daniel's 
prophecy of the end times. And Daniel's prophecy predicts seven years of tribulation. And I believe that Revelation is describing the details of those seven years. Seven years divided by two, there's a midway point that's talked about in Daniel, which is three and a half years. So I believe here, this is 42 months, is talking about the literal three and a half years, representing specifically the latter half of the Daniel prophecy. Then if you, the other views that the one I don't believe in, is that this is completely figurative. The 42 months is just representing the current today's church age. Just completely symbolic. So again, just lay it all out this all this so you guys can better understand this passage. I will talk about why this is important. Because it doesn't really matter what view you hold. What we see the point of the passage is this. God here knows his people. He knows his church. And God has sovereign, the sovereign right now protecting his church. He is measuring the amount. He knows each person to the detail. He knows you personally. He knows the exact number that belongs in his flock. And he will protect his people. And so we engage, we can engage in spiritual warfare confidently because God promises to protect his people and sustain them to the end. But whether or not this protection includes a physical protection or is only a spiritual protection, whether or not this protection means we're raptured out so we don't face any of the tribulation, that doesn't matter. What we ultimately know is that God will not lose one of his sheep. God repeatedly says that throughout scripture. What that means is that if you are here tonight and you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and you believe that he has risen from the grave and that is your truth upon which you have built your life upon, your salvation is secured for eternity. Your salvation is sealed by the unblemished blood of Christ. See, what this looks like is it's us going towards, going, moving forward in life. And God is holding on to you. It's like you're riding a bicycle and God is holding on to you. He's telling you, just look forward, just keep going. Just keep going. I have you. I'm holding on to you. So you ride. You move forward in life. And yes, you might hit a few bumps in a row. Yes, you might teeter a little bit. You might, you know, wobble. But you will never fall because God is holding on to you. And that is really the thrust of what Revelation, one of the purposes of why Revelation is written for us. Back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, when John was addressing the churches, he tells one of the churches this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death. And I, God, Christ, will give you the crown of life. That's the security that we have, this sovereign protection over us. And this is why we can engage in spiritual warfare against this world. The second reason, the second reason why we can have confidence in God 
is because he has also given us spiritual power. Read with me from verse 3. Here, John continues to describe what he's seeing. He says, And I will grant, so this God speaking, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Just to make note, 1,260 days is also 42 months. So here, this is talking about the same time period that while the nations are trampling on the holy city, God will also send two witnesses to prophesy for 42 months, three and a half years, and they will be clothed in sackcloth. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foe. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Stop there. What we see here, just kind of walking through this passage, we see here two witnesses. Two witnesses, two prophets sent by God. And it says here in verse 4 that these two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, what is that? What does that refer to? This goes back to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4. And in Zechariah chapter 4, we've actually looked at this passage. I think in the second sermon of this series, so months ago, um, and it's, in Zechariah chapter 4, we've talked about a lampstand, because the lampstand here is actually back in Revelation chapter 1. And so we refer, we refer back to this passage then. But I just want to point out to you why these two witnesses are fulfillment of this prophecy here in Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 11, here, this is what it says, here is Zechariah, the prophet, speaking back and forth to this angel who's giving him this prophecy. And verse, four, uh, verse 11 says this, Then I, Zechariah, said to him, the angel, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? So we see here the olive trees and the lampstand. And, and then the angel was silent, so Zechariah just, Confused, he wants to know what's going on. So he asked again. And the second time I answered, I said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pies from which the golden oil is poured out? So Zechariah here's like telling, going to the angels, like, tell me. Here the angel responds. He said to me, do you not know what these are? I mean, the angel's like talking to him. I'll be so frustrated about Zechariah here. He says, no, my Lord. Finally, finally, the angel says this. These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So these two witnesses we see in Revelation are the same two olive trees here in Zechariah chapter 4. What is the point of all this? Well, to give you some context of Zechariah chapter 4, during this time, Israel was in exile, but they are they're at the end of their exile. They're returning back to Jerusalem. So they're, they're on their way back. And they're on their way back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple 
and those city walls. And they faced many challenges that stood in the way of completing that project. Uh, during that time, there's the, the governor of the, of the Israel, the returning Israel um, back to the land was a guy named Zerubbabel. He was governor who oversaw this project of rebuilding the temple and the walls. And because he faced many challenges, the people were discouraged. They were wondering, can we actually ever finish rebuilding this temple? Can we ever truly rebuild our home and worship God again as he intends us to? And the point of this prophecy is to remind Zerubbabel that he will not finish his temple based on his own strength or ingenuity. Zerubbabel will finish this temple, this construction project, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 says this, and he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so these two olive trees next to the lampstand represents God's presence, his spirit empowering Zerubbabel to complete the task. And so now coming back to Revelation chapter 11, we see here two witnesses that are the two olive trees and the two lances that stand before the Lord of the earth. Here they appear, and it's as if God is reminding his people, hey, my power is with you. You will finish the task. And we see these two witnesses. They are the dynamic duel here, right? They're, they're just, they're powerful. They have the authority to speak this speak these truths, and they're protected. Now, these two witnesses says here that if anyone will harm them, fire will come out of their mouth and consume their foes. <laughs> that means no one can touch them. They are undefeatable. I mean, they, they have authority to shut the sky so no rain may fall. They have power over the waters to turn into blood, and they can strike the earth with every kind of plague. They are empowered in so many ways. They're like these video game characters that just totally OP and just cannot be defeated. Yeah. Now the text here, looking at this, looking at this description here, the text here, text here does not specifically tell us who these two witnesses are. Now some, again, if you, if you interpret this super in terms of like very symbolically you believe this talking about the current this is talking about current times these two witnesses then you interpret these two witnesses as representatives of the entire church um, of the entire church now however I, I believe these are two witnesses two literal individuals that god will empower to be his promise during this time and we don't know who they are some people say they're moses and elijah because they come into power of Moses and Elijah. They have power over water. They can, they can turn water to blood. They have power over the sky. Elijah was able to command the sky not to rain for several days. Um, they have power to send plagues. So they believe they, these two come in the power of Moses and Elijah. Perhaps it is Moses and Elijah coming back to earth. Now, I, I wouldn't go so far as saying these are Moses and Elijah, but we do see that they do hold the same attributes. However, to look upon them, we are to be reminded 
that these two witnesses are sent here to remind us that God has empowered his church, that God has empowered his people, that God is with these two witnesses, gave them all his power, but we too are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, if you are a believer of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Now we note the, the main task that these two witnesses are sent to do. They are sent to prophesy, meaning to proclaim the truth to the world. They are to tell the world about Christ. That anyone who, anyone who will follow Jesus will be saved, but anyone who doesn't will face eternal condemnation for their sins. That is the truth. The, the miracles here are not the main feature. It's what they are prophesying about. It's what they're telling them. And that's where the true power lies. It's in the power of the word. And we have the word, don't we? We have the spirit and we have the word of God. We have the gospel. We are empowered much in the same way. As we, the church today, are engaged in spiritual warfare, we, we have the power and the weapons to battle. In this because God has given to us all that we need. And so the church today engages in spiritual warfare through the proclamation of truth. Through the proclamation of truth. You see, this is not just empowerment for to talk about to proclaim truth is not just something meant for pastors, for prophets, for evangelists. This task is meant for all of us, for every single one of you in every single situation, to speak truth to all people. And we're not just saying talking about evangelism, we're talking about speaking truth even in your small groups, to your believing friends. Are you able to speak truth to them, gospel truths? Sometimes it's difficult, because sometimes to speak those truths means to call out, call them out on their sin, call them to repent. We are given all this. I'm not going to cross-reference for a second time, but we, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 46, you can make reference to that. We see that spiritual battle. We see how the word of God is what's needed to battle against the spiritual darkness of this world. We are reminded of all this. We're reminded of this, that there is power indeed in the word because Paul himself says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. For it is indeed the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so we can engage in spiritual warfare confidently through evangelism, through proclaiming God's word, because the gospel is the power of God working through us to bring many to salvation. This is why we can have confidence, why we can have confidence in evangelizing fighting this war. And then the third reason, the third way we can draw confidence from God is found in the rest of the passage is the fact that there is this successful prophecy happening. Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. It says, when they, these two witnesses, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will the beast from, that rises from the bottom of the pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. 
and their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from uh, some from the peoples and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. For those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth as Paul's there. We see here that when these two prophets finished their task, they have completed the work of God, they have faithfully prophesied about the truth to all these people. What happens? They die. They face their death. They're killed by this beast that arises from the abyss. And we will know more about this beast in later sermons. But I believe this is the Antichrist. We're reminded here that faithful witness, faithful witnesses of Christ will bear the same reproach Christ did. Christ died for his proclamation of truth. So will we for our beliefs. We won't all be martyred, but we will indeed face that same reproach in the world. You see these two witnesses, they were killed. And I believe they were killed again in Jerusalem, literal Jerusalem, because it says here that they, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city where their Lord Christ was crucified. That is in Jerusalem. But it says that this great city is symbolically called Sodom in Egypt, meaning Jerusalem here no longer represents a faithful city. It's a city that has gone astray. It's represented symbolically by Sodom, a city known for its sin, and Egypt, the city that held Israel in captive. The city has gone astray and disobeyed God, and we see that here, that while these two witnesses lie dead on the street for three and a half days, the people rejoiced. They rejoiced over their deaths. They're celebrating, they're handing each other gifts. It's Christmas all of a sudden for them. I mean, they're just, they're just having fun. This is like their championship parade. But like all championships, this victory hangover is short-lived. So we keep reading here, verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. We see here that these faithful followers of Christ continue to mirror their Savior. These two witnesses resurrected on the third day, but they didn't. They were resurrected to return back to prophesying. Their task was complete. Instead, when they were brought back to life, they received a reward. God looks upon them and says, come up here. Enter heaven and be with your Lord and Savior for all eternity. 
and the people, the people who was rejoicing over their dead bodies, they're now shell-shocked. They're watching them. They're wondering what's going on. They saw these bodies rise and they're wondering, are you guys going to torment me again? They're silent. And they watch this scene as they go up to heaven in great suspense. And they're wondering to themselves, what could this mean? What can this mean? They didn't have time to think about this because all of a sudden, an earthquake hits them. Temp of the city fell. 7,000 killed. The rest of them terrified. And this earthquake, as it hits them, it reminds these people who are watching them everything that these prophets were saying were true. That God would judge them for their sins. These two prophets spoke truth and their words came to fruition. God fulfills his warning to these people. And so what marks these prophets' ministry as successful? Well, why do we say, why am I saying that this is a successful prophecy? Well, one, because yes, there is indeed a great earthquake, but more than that, it says here that the rest, the rest who remained alive were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. Hallelujah. Now, we don't know if these people are truly saved. The rest Revelation doesn't really give us those details. In fact, the rest of Revelation might hint that many of these people weren't, aren't actually saved. But the goal here, recognize the goal here, is to bring glory to God. And that's exactly what they just did here. You see, the goal for us in evangelism isn't just to get people saved. The end goal of saving souls is to bring glory to God, our salvation's goal, the end of our salvation is not just us entering heaven, but to bring glory to God. And so we see here that not that this is this is what it's all meant to be. All of this is to bring glory to God, and not even death can stop that plan from happening. And what we see here is that physical death, physical death is not a mark of failure, but a mark of faithfulness. You see, we can think about why, why should we go evangelize when these people hate us, when these people hate church? Why go to some indigenous people who never heard the gospel and they're going to kill everyone who land on their island? Why go there? It seems pointless, it seems fruitless. But let us remember that death cannot stop God from fulfilling his word. Death is not a mark of failure. It's a mark of faithfulness. And that's true throughout church history. Where we stand today, why we can be here today, lies on the foundation of the blood of many saints. See, our physical lives, our physical lives are meant now in Christ 
to be all it meant to be is to proclaim the truth of the gospel. That's all that we're called to do here. That's all of who we are. Second Corinthians speaks much into this. Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seven, that we have this treasure that is this this gospel truth in jars of clay. Our bodies, jars of clay, waste baskets, useless vessels. But yet, God places this treasure in jars of clay. It's like placing a, an engagement ring in a brown paper bag. And why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. How does this play out? Verse 11 and 12 says this. It says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, this doesn't mean that we all have to die for our faith, but what this again means is that we are constantly sacrificing our lives to show the power of the gospel to others that through that power of that word, many will be saved. And so this means that we can engage in spiritual warfare confidently because God will indeed successfully fulfill his word when we proclaim these truths. And yes, we may be hated for it. Yes, we may face much suffering. Yes, it may be difficult. We may lose our social status, we may lose our finances, we may lose our jobs. But God will successfully fulfill his word through that same proclamation. Do you believe, do you trust that God will work through that in order that a few will be saved? We don't need to be fancy of our words. We don't need to be eloquent of speech. We don't need fog machines or fireworks. We don't need elaborate musicals or big productions. Those things are good. They're not bad. You can use them. But what's most important is the substance. Do we speak the truth of the gospel? Do we proclaim that faithfully? Because the truth we get will determine which side of God's promises they will stand. Believe or repent and you will be saved or ignore this truth and you will face the penalty of your sins. Again, in 2 Corinthians, this time chapter 2, it says, we, we are the Roma Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So we are Christ. We speak this truth of Christ to all people, those who are being saved and those who are perishing. We don't know that. We don't know who amongst us are indeed saved who are perishing, but we are still an aroma to all of them. But to one of them, to those who are saved, that aroma is the fragrance. Um, actually, to those who are, who are unbelievers, that aroma is the fragrance from death to death. But to the other, that aroma is the fragrance from life to life. See, what matters is not the fact that you save people. What matters is that are you an aroma of Christ? Paul continues, says, who is sufficient for these things? 
who, who are we? Can we do this? How do we do this? For we are not like so many pillars of God's word. So we don't, we don't mess around with God's word. We don't try to add to it. We don't try to remove away, remove any of it. We just simply speak the truth. We are men of sincerity, commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We simply just speak of the word. We speak this truth. That's what these witnesses did. They faced death, but do we see how God fulfilled his promises in their resurrection? You trust in God in all this. And so the main point of all this, main point of all this is that, guys, we are in, indeed, a spiritual battle. The reason why you struggle with your faith is because there's a spiritual battle going on in your hearts. The reason why we fear sharing this with others is because there's a spiritual battle trying to stop us from proclaiming these truths. The reason why it's hard to read the word of God, why it's hard for us to do our devotions, because Satan is trying to stop us from actually understanding the word of God. Satan doesn't want this truth to get out because it is true. I will set you free. We in the face of all this, can face all the spiritual darkness, the spiritual warfare confidently because we have God on our side. He has promised to protect us. He has promised to, to empower us. And he has promised to fulfill all that he has said here in this word. And so then you can engage in spiritual warfare confidently through evangelism. Because God promises to protect you and empower you to stand faithfully until the end. And so how do you read God's word? Last week, I talked about why we can trust in God's word. Why God's word is all-powerful, all-sufficient for all that we need. Here we see, then, how do we apply God's word to our life? <laughs> Because if we trust God's word, we will apply it. It begins here. If you trust God's word in obedience, obedience should follow. The last verse of our passage, verse 14, Revelation 11, 14, says, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Now, in the context of this passage, it is indeed... We see secrets going on. Chapter 10, chapter 10, 11, there's, we're just covered this interlude that happened between the second and third world. But it's a reminder for us that there is indeed an urgency for us to speak the truth, for us to stand strong and faithfully now, today, for us to make a decision about our lives today. There's an urgency because this judgment as promised here in Revelation is coming. So don't wait. Don't wait to make a decision about your life with Christ. Don't wait to make a decision about how you will treat God's word. Don't wait to see how God will call you. God has called you now today to proclaim this truth to all those around you. Again, both to believers and unbelievers. Being a Roman Christ to all people. And take hold of God's promise. He will indeed 
hold you to the end, and you will have your great reward in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that your grace constantly carries us day by day. And that, Lord, day by day, we always need your grace. We always need you to help us, to support us, to carry us on. And so, Lord, we thank you that by your grace, we have your spirit. We have salvation secure for eternity, and we have your word before us. So, Lord, may we then treasure your word to proclaim it to all people, to be an aroma of Christ to both those who are saved and to those who are perishing. We don't know who they are, but Lord, let's be an aroma of Christ to all people. So, let's live our life out faithfully. And Lord, we need you to do that. Lord, we are indeed just jars of clay. We need you. So, Lord, I pray that you'll be with all all the students here tonight. May you help them through their studies, through their trials, through their busyness. May you help them and help them carry on through all this. But in the midst of all this, in the midst of their busy season, May they continue to remember to lean upon you, to hold on to your word, and to continue to be a light wherever they are. May they continue to walk with you faithfully. Thank you again for your word. I pray all this in your name. Amen.